Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. As we continue to look at Paul's first epistle to this church that he began by God's grace in Thessalonica, the northern part of Greece, called Macedonia then, uh, I want to remind you of some earlier words in chapter 1 of this epistle, because they'll sound familiar today when we get to our text for today. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 2, we read this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So now, um, the first part of chapter 2, which we've already covered, was Paul rehearsing what kind of men he and his companions had proved to be among the Thessalonians. He had expanded on that topic. Remember what kind of men we were. Remember our ministry among you. The fact that we, uh, <clears throat> we were not timid, but bold to proclaim the gospel of God. We, were, we did not come with impure motives or tactics, but we simply presented the word of God as it was to you. We were not just doing what we did for, for money or for acclaim. Uh, we did not just have a job to do that we did and then stayed distant from you. No, we treated you as a nursing mother would care for her children. We exhorted each one of you as a father would his children, etc. So now after he has expanded on that, what that meant, what kind of men they proved to be among the Thessalonians, now Paul returns in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2 to thanking God, excuse me, now he returns to thanking God for the Thessalonians' response to his message. Uh, let's read verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. 
So let's work our way, first of all, through the text to get the thought of the text. And then we'll talk about, uh, we'll further talk about its relevance. I have divided this text into two things. First of all, Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonian Christians. And then uh, after that, Paul's assurance to the Thessalonian Christians. So first of all, his thanksgiving for them, then his assurance to them. What was Paul thanking God for about these Christians at Thessalonica? Well, for one thing, they had received the apostolic message as God's own word. They had received the apostolic message as God's own word. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, we were the preachers, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Notice that Paul thanks God here for what they did. Uh, Without God's inward work within them, they would not have been able to respond properly to the gospel, acknowledging it to be from God and not just from men. So that's why Paul can thank God that when they received the gospel, they received it properly as God's word. And so, um, well, he also he also says here, uh, he speaks of the word of God, which is at work in you believers, and some. Some translate that, uh, they think it's referring to God, who is at work in you believers. Either way, it expresses a similar thing there. As Paul says elsewhere to the Philippians, uh, another town in Macedonia, Philippians 2, um, verse 13, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God and his word are the real power at work in believers, to create and sustain their faith. And so all the glory and all the thanksgiving goes to God um, when we do respond rightly to his truth. But he's giving thanks to God um, for them thus also. He is overjoyed that the gospel found good soil in which to grow in Thessalonica because they realize this isn't just something a man made up. This is not just Paul's opinion he is proclaiming. This is God speaking to us through the Apostle Paul, through the preachers of the gospel. This reminds me of Isaiah 55, as we see that God and his word are the real power at work in believers to create and sustain their faith. In Isaiah 55, the context being that uh, all peoples are called to come and find refuge in the Messiah, in the Christ, uh, to whom God has given everlasting promises, everlasting covenant promises. Uh, In that context, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For, 
as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, just like the rain and the snow come down and accomplish these things, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul expressed that kind of confidence in the word of the gospel. Again, Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not so much saying I'm not embarrassed of the gospel as saying, I know the gospel is not going to let me down. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to rely on it only to see it fail. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Likewise, Paul acknowledges when he writes to the Corinthians that, yes, some people scorn the gospel when they hear it, but that's not, <clears throat> that's not a problem with the gospel. This is God's design that uh, the worldly wise will not be able to understand his wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, he says, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. That's what they're looking for. And Greeks seek wisdom, some really clever philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Thessalonians had received the apostolic message as God's own word, not just the word of men. And that word is even now at work within them. The word of God's grace is that which is continuing to sanctify them, to keep them uh, safe in Christ, to build them up in their faith. And then... <clears throat> Now that they had, they had accepted this as God's word, they endured the resulting persecution by their peers. To accept this as God's truth was to go against the whole world, their whole world. It was to go against the Jewish synagogue in town. It was also to go against their Gentile family and neighbors who believed in many gods. And... Uh, but not in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. People had built their entire lives on something opposed to this message. And so, when God enabled these Thessalonians to believe the truth about Jesus Christ, his gospel, that set them automatically in, uh, on a collision course with their culture with the people they knew, people they'd grown up with, their peers. Notice how in verse 14, Paul says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. We'll, we'll talk more about that later, that he's comparing them to the Jewish Christians in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The people who abused you who treated you roughly, who slandered you, etc., on account of the gospel, they weren't, they weren't people that had just always been your enemies. They weren't some 
some foreign barbarian horde. They weren't someone far off, um, far removed from your inner circle. These were your neighbors. These were your countrymen that treated you harshly because of the gospel. You endured the resulting persecution by your peers. You know, if we turn back to Acts 17, Acts 17, we get a hint of the pressures on the Thessalonian church. And notice, as we read through here, uh, this makes sense of why Paul so easily shifts from what they experienced to what the Jewish churches in Judea experienced to what um, the Jewish people in general who, who did not believe in Christ were doing everywhere. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they, Paul and his companions, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We could also fill in then what Luke skips over a bit here from 1 Thessalonians, that many of them then had also come straight out of paganism, had turned to God from idols. So you had Gentiles who had never been around the synagogue also believing. Verse 5 then skips to the end of Paul's time there. It says, But the Jews were jealous, <clears throat> and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that is, Paul and his companions apparently were staying with, with Jason, uh, who was, would have been a wealthy man with enough house to house them. When they could not find them, Paul and his companions, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, you see at least part of the picture from what Luke records that uh, the opposition seems to have mainly started in earnest from the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica. And then they would stir up 
the Gentiles with things that would mean more to the Gentiles. Accusations like they're contesting Caesar's lordship, you know. Uh, they're putting our city in danger of not being a friend to Caesar anymore. That idea. <clears throat> but then, even when Paul went to a town quite a ways away, Berea, these, these people in the synagogue at Thessalonica were so hostile toward Paul and so bent on his destruction that they went all the way over to Berea and stirred things up there when the synagogue of Berea had been just fine. There hadn't been a big uproar. There was a stiff opposition in Thessalonica to the entire idea of the gospel and of the Gentiles being brought in to faith. <laughs> well, uh, we said that Paul's giving thanks that, number one, the Thessalonians received the message of the gospel as the word of God himself as, with divine authority. And number two, as the result, they endured the resulting persecution by their peers. That leads us into uh, more of a note of assurance here. Paul's assurance in the Thessalonian Christians. He begins to um, elaborate on the idea of this persecution they are facing. And number one, he, say, he says that their sufferings paralleled those of the Judean Christians. You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, Jesus that are in Judea. That would be the area around Jerusalem in Palestine. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who, both killed, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." Paul thanked God that these believers held on to God's message in the gospel despite heavy opposition. In fact, this persecution he's indicating was a high privilege for them. It's like saying, you're, so to speak, it's like saying, look, you're in the Hall of Fame with the churches of Judea. <laughs> you have a high privilege suffering for Christ in this way. They joined the ranks of the suffering saints throughout the world. These Gentiles were just as privileged as the Jewish saints because they, were both, they both received the same treatment because of the same faith. And so whereas people would naturally be discouraged by persecution, Paul is encouraging them and assuring them that this is a high privilege. As he said to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.29, well, I'll, I'll start in verse 27 actually. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, it's been gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's a gift, suffering for Christ is, just as much as faith in him was a gift in the first place. It's a gift if you are privileged to suffer shame for Christ. 
Now, Paul takes time to mention all the things that Jewish people, beginning in Judea, but not just confined to Judea, all the things the Jewish people had done to oppose God and his gospel and his people. They killed the Lord Jesus, he says. This is not anti-Semitism. Paul is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. But it is, it is uh, reckoning with the fact that, yes, um, that as a nation, as a covenant nation under the Old Covenant, uh, Israel was responsible for killing their Messiah. Can I have a, I'm sorry, can I have a tissue box up here? I didn't foresee this issue arising. <laughs> Thank you. So they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And that probably refers to the fact that all through their history, Israel had killed the, the men of God who had been sent to them, the prophets. And then Paul says, they, um, they drove us out. Thank you. Pardon me. Okay, that's better. Uh, so, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out. Referring particularly, I think, to Paul. Um, in his history, the Jews were always uh, tracking him down, driving him out of town, wherever he went. And um, I just want to remind you of some of the history of this from the book of Acts. Um, and Saul, in fact... When Paul had been Saul of Tarsus, he had been right at the center of this, hadn't he? <laughs> he had been the Jewish opposition. When Stephen was stoned, he had uh, watched the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen. And then that was when a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, Acts 8 says, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So, Paul knows what he's talking about, about what has happened to the churches in Judea. In fact, he did part of it. <laughs> but he recognizes, whereas Christ had arrested him by his grace, converted him, changed his heart, uh, the Jewish nation at large were still in their minds and hearts where Saul used to be. And things were still hard for the churches in Judea. Uh, after Saul's persecution, later uh, there were hard times again in Judea, Acts chapter 12. Herod the king, Herod Agrippa, had, it says, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church in Judea. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's when he put Peter in prison and the angel released Peter by night. So that was another persecution where he was trying, it says, to please the Jews in doing this. This was a Jewish king, Herod Agrippa, who was trying to please the Jews by, by violence against the church, by uh, imprisoning and killing some of their leaders. So that's what Paul's referring to, I think. <clears throat> some of what he's referring to when he says, you're experiencing just what the churches in Judea experienced. Um, but he says, you killed both the Lord... Uh, Paul says about the Jews, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. 
Jesus had said in Matthew 23 to the Jewish leadership, You witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Luke 11, verse 49, Jesus uh, tells them what God is doing in their midst. He says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You think Paul's being pretty hard here, pretty harsh on his Jewish brethren. Yes, because now Paul is on God's side in this contest. And these people whom they are persecuting, whom he used to persecute, are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he realizes the opposition is not just against these people, it's against the Lord Jesus. This is the same treatment that the Lord Jesus received when he was killed. Notice he says that the Jews, speaking of the nation at large, which did not believe the gospel, the Jews displease God and oppose all mankind. How? by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. I won't take time, but but you can go through the book of Acts again, Acts chapter 13 and 14, and then again where we were in chapter 17, where it seemed like everywhere Paul went, just about, the Jews would follow him to stir things up against him, because he was, not only was he claiming to proclaim the Jewish Messiah, but he was saying the Gentiles had an equal interest in that Messiah. And so, God so loved the world, not just Israel, but the world, and gave his only begotten son. The Jews who refused to believe the gospel were displeasing God. They were saying no to God's love for the world. And they were opposing all mankind by saying no. They, they do not have, they cannot have this gospel covenant with our God. He's ours, not theirs. They did not want Paul speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That was how they were opposing all mankind. And so it is today with those who oppose the gospel, who do not want it to spread, who do not want to see churches established, who want to slander God and his people in public. They're opposing all mankind as well as their own good, the good of their own souls. Because the gospel is mankind's only hope. So God takes, uh, though he allows it for good purposes, God takes persecution very seriously. Which shows us all the more how gracious it was for God to save Paul and not crush him (laughs) on the spot. And as Paul is assuring uh, giving assurance to these Thessalonian Christians, not only is he saying their sufferings parallel those of the Judean Christians, thus they are privileged, but secondly, their enemies are fighting a losing battle. That's really what he's pressing home here. Their enemies are fighting a losing battle. The Jews have been doing all this so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Well, first of all, what does he mean 
so as always by doing all these things to fill up the measure of their sins. Well, you know what? He's getting that very wording. If you look at a Greek Old Testament, he's getting that very sort of wording from Genesis 15, where the Canaanites are spoken of. Where God said to Abram, your, your descendants will be in Egypt for a matter of 400 years, and then I'll bring them out, because the time is not yet for them to possess this promised land of Canaan. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, or... The Greek Old Testament, it would word it just like Paul words this here. The measure of their sins isn't full yet. Once the measure of sins is full in Scripture for a people, it's ready for them to experience climactic judgment from God. But Paul's using that sort of language, originally used of the cursed line of Canaan. He's using it for the Jewish people at large, for their covenant nation. Obviously, he's not talking about the many Jews who did believe. Thousands of Jews believed the gospel and became part of the church. So this is not an ethnic thing. This is a, an issue of God's old covenant nation coming under judgment because they had been given the oracles of God and then they refused their Messiah when he came. Similarly, Jesus told them. He told the Jewish leadership, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 32, after he says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Same sort of wording. Go ahead. Fill up the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, <clears throat> some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So they've, these enemies of God, in this case the Jewish nation, they've, they've done these things so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, so that... When God's wrath did fall, it would be all the more richly deserved. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, there's a lot of discussion how those two little words at last, how the, the wording translated that way here in our ESV, how that should be understood. It might be wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, or wrath has come upon them until the end. Or maybe, a, maybe the easiest way to, to think of it is wrath has come upon them fully and finally. So, you know, there's, I'm not exactly sure which direction to take this. Either Paul is looking to the future wrath of God and saying it's already determined and imminent, it's as good as done. That can include the judgment against Israel in AD 70, it can include the last judgment when Christ returns. Or else Paul is already seeing that God's wrath is already at work against the Jews and hardening them against the gospel so that there's no turning back from their fate. But notice throughout here, Paul is comparing the sufferings, particularly of the Jewish churches, to the sufferings of the Thessalonian church. And so, as G.K. Bill writes, Paul also suggests that their persecutors... Their persecutors will 
um, will be judged just as the Jewish persecutors of the Judean churches. Sort of, sort of to say, if God will pour out his wrath on the Jews who were his people, if he will pour out his wrath in such a consummate way on them, he will deal with your persecutors also in Thessalonica. That's implied there. So persecution is a, is a great privilege for God's people, and yet it brings great condemnation to those who impenitently persist in it. So how is this text relevant to us today? Well, first of all, before we get back to that theme of persecution, um, it, should, it should affect our reception of and our confidence in God's living word. Of course, that's a continuing theme from earlier parts of this epistle. When you hear the Bible preached or taught, do you say in your mind, hmm, let's see what this man has to say today. <laughs> or do you say, what is God saying to us today? When a royal herald goes out and publicly and carefully repeats the words of the king, the audience should not react as if it's just the herald's advice or opinion. Unless, of course, the herald clearly has gone rogue and he's not repeating the king's words in their proper context. There's preachers like that too. But as long as the herald is being faithful to the message the king gave him, the herald isn't the issue. The king is the issue. It's his message. You know, the primary word for preaching in the New Testament is the word for such a heralding activity. Paul preached the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the Thessalonians received that message as God's very word. That's why they had to act on it. They had to respond in repentant faith. And God's word is the effective agent at work to form and change believers because it's not man's word, it's God's word. It's all powerful to accomplish its purpose. It's that which is at work in we who believe, Paul says. Are you confident that the word of God is sufficient to make and keep believers? Are you confident that this is enough? We as individual believers, only, our only need is to spread God's word if we want to see more people brought to faith in Christ. We don't have to say, well, I gave him, I gave him the Bible as best I could, but I'm not that clever. I don't have that great of a personality. Um, we don't have to rely on our cleverness or our ingenuity when we're trying to make converts. When we want to attract people to our Savior. Now, we, we ought to, our lives ought to line up as much as possible with the message we're giving. But it's the message, it's not us. It's alive and active. It's the Word of God found here in the written scriptures. It does its job because it's living. God breathed it out. We just need to be faithful at, <clears throat> faithful ambassadors 
accurately representing our king's word and character. And our church, and thank the Lord, uh, I think most of you are here because you understand this. Our church does not need additional attractions to interest people in our Lord. We just need his word. In fact, if we start relying on our own salesmanship or our organizational prowess or something, like that's the secret, going to be the secret to our success as a church, that's an insult to God. As if his almighty word were just not enough to really get done what needs to happen here. Just remember that. We need to receive God's word as God's, not man's. And realize it's the effective agent for change and for making and keeping believers. Uh, Second area of relevance here would be our genuine faith revealed by persecution. Paul was rejoicing because he could tell the Thessalonians were genuine in how they received this message because they had had to face stiff opposition for it, and yet they held firm. It should remind us of Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, shouldn't it? The, the parable of the different kinds of soil. As the sower went out to sow seed, um, the man is going out throwing out seed, and it lands different places on different kinds of soil. And there are different responses to the seed, which Jesus says represents the word of the gospel. Um, The word of the kingdom. And he mentions, among other kinds of ground, he mentions uh, that which was sown on rocky ground. Uh, That is, there's a little bit of soil on top, but then there's, there's rock underneath the surface. And Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's in contrast to later the good soil, that uh, it's the, the ones who hear the word and understand it, and then they bear fruit and yield, some, some of them a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But there's always abiding fruit uh, if people really get it. If they really have true faith in the message. So our genuine faith will be revealed by persecution. That's one reason, among many, why it's such a privilege. Because God is revealing to us, to the world, before men and angels, these people really are mine. I really have changed them. And although they face opposition, they hold fast to the gospel, and I'm holding them fast. It's God's stamp of approval on us. Ownership. Persecution is actually a glorious test, which will demonstrate God's genuine work in us. And your neighbors and countrymen will persecute you. And remember, it it doesn't just start with... uh, we shouldn't, when we think about persecution, we shouldn't start with the drastic things of being thrown in prison, losing your life, things like that. When Jesus in the Gospels talks about persecution, he starts with things like verbal persecution, social estrangement, things like that. When people don't want you part of their group. When people say all manner of evil against you falsely because of me. 
but your neighbors and countrymen will persecute you in these ways. As I said, it starts with the small things that may not take your life or liberty or possessions, but they still sting. When that happens, don't be surprised or downcast. Actually, Jesus says, rejoice! You've been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sound familiar from our text? They did this to the prophets, and they're doing the same thing to you. Or Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, you're not part of their clique. And they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Our genuine faith is revealed by persecution, and that's a good thing. But then third and last, think about the comfort we should have in God's wrath against the wicked. Ooh, that just doesn't sound right to us, does it? The comfort we should have in God's wrath against the wicked. And of course, this has to be held in proper tension with the equally true truth that that uh, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, as Paul puts it. We should desire all sorts of sinners to repent of their wickedness and come and find the grace of Christ. We should want their salvation. But if they, if they will not, if people harden their hearts against the gospel, then we should take comfort in God's wrath in the end against them. Malachi 4, God speaks to his faithful people and he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, the S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like, like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God's judgment on the wicked, especially on those who persecute his people, in fact, will be great vindication for his people. There will come a day when Nero who burned Christians alive to light his gardens, he will face the judge of all the earth. And that's a good thing. There will come a day when if they do not repent, the regime in North Korea who imprison and afflict believers will face wrath. And that's a good thing. There will come a day when those who say all manner of evil things falsely about Christians, about Jesus Christ, will have to answer for that in God's courtroom. And the truth will be known by everyone. That's a good thing.
that should comfort us. All wrongs will be made right one day. If you don't long for that kind of true justice in the last day, there's something wrong. Paul is saying this as a comfort to them, as he's talking about the fact that they have real enemies, but God's wrath is is coming after them. (laughs) Revelation 3, Jesus spoke to a church in the city of Philadelphia in Asia. He says, verse 8 of Revelation 3, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That's what he calls the synagogue in their town. The synagogue of Satan, because that's who's energizing them to do what they do. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. They're not my people, God says. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So often in this world, things are so upside down. The righteous are afflicted, discriminated against, lied about, and it seems like the wicked prosper. But one day, that will flip. Paul, in fact, says that God's people will judge the world at Christ's side, and we will judge angels even. And in that day, the wicked will have to fall down at the feet of Christ and his people and say, I was wrong. That would be glorious. So let's love what our God loves, and hate what he hates. And again, we're seeking the salvation of our countrymen, just as people in Thessalonica were. Paul grieved for his brethren according to the flesh. He says, if it were possible, I would wish myself accursed in their place, if only they would believe the gospel. Paul was not hard-hearted towards his persecutors. Neither should we be. And yet there's that balance. We should rejoice to suffer for Christ when that is our lot, and we should rejoice that God's wrath will make everything right in the end as well. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for for helping us to hopefully see some things clearly from your word. May they be clear before our eyes. May our hearts be good soil for your word today. Help us to take comfort when we do seem to face stiff opposition in our Christian walk, even from the people who we might naturally think would treat us better. Help us to rejoice, be glad, be confident that this is your plan, your good plan for us, that we are privileged to suffer for Christ, and may we be assured that that persecution will not last forever, that Jesus is coming to make all wrongs right. May we not seek vengeance or justice for ourselves, but vengeance is yours and you will repay, Lord. Keep us clinging to Christ. May we not fall away when we experience uh, rough waters because of him. Help us to encourage each other day by uh, help us to encourage each other day by day um, to cling to Christ. Help us to remind each other that it is worth it 
to serve Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.